Warning, today's story is rated R for profanity, explicit imagery, and small furry aliens gone wild. Escape Pod 32 December 15th, 2005 Today's story, Alien Animal Encounters, by John Scalzi Hello, welcome to Escape Pod. I'm Steve Ely. And I'm Anna Ely. This was not my idea. It never is, dear. So, this was a couple of years ago. Slander, all of it. That I was sitting on the couch in the living room, and Steve was in the kitchen graciously loading up the dishwasher when he said to me, Anna, Anna, you gotta come see this. So me being the curious sort, I stood up from the couch and started walking towards the kitchen and said, what? What's happening? And Steve said... The kitchen window was greasy. And Steve said, it's either a hawk or a duck. The kitchen window was very dirty. I saw a big, gray, bird-like object. But how did he confuse that with a duck? (laughs) Well, I figured it out after I saw it eating the carcass of a rabbit. That's when he figured out it was actually a juvenile Cooper's hawk. Well, that's after I googled it. Eventually it was figured out. Right. And there's this time when Steve swore to me he saw the biggest rat ever. He said it was big and it was gray and he knew it was a rat because it had this long bald tail. And I even told him, dear, sounds like a possum to me. But he did not believe me until he posted on his news group and five people said, dude, that was a possum. Yeah, including Lawrence Watt Evans. Anyway, I'm not from the South. Possums are not my back. They have possums all over the United States, though, including Maryland. Not in my house, they don't. Well, it wasn't in the house. It was outside the house. Okay. Are you done embarrassing me? I can tell some more stories. That's all right. But thank you. Anyway, I think that's the cue to introduce this week's story. We're proud and very amused to present Alien Animal Encounters by John Scalzi. It's a bit of forward journalism that is really exactly what the title says. Mr. Scalzi, for those 12 of you who haven't heard of him, is a career writer whose books include The Rough Guide to the Universe... The Rough Guide to Science Fiction Film, The Book of the Dumb, and because one book wasn't enough for all the world's dumbness, The Book of the Dumb 2. His breakout science fiction novel, Old Man's War, was published this year to rave reviews, and the sequel, The Ghost Brigades, is due out very soon. He's also got one of the bigger blogs on the internet, very aptly named Whatever. It's one of the only two personal blogs I check on every single day, because he's that entertaining. The story is read this week by an ensemble cast of six people. Guess how long it took me to get that going. Parts of the story were read by myself, my dear wife Anna, Scott Janssens, Deborah Green, Jonathan Sully Dog Sullivan, and Marilyn Fuller. Did we have fun? Yes, we had fun. Oh, one final note. When I contacted him about the story, Mr. Scalzi asked that instead of paying him for it, I send his payment to Reading as Fundamental the nation's oldest children's literacy organization. 
we did make that donation in his honor. And having read about the program now, I'd encourage you all to check it out. The link's on our website. And without further ado, put on your khakis and your pith helmet. It's story time. Alien Animal Encounters by John Scalzi, staff writer, Soul System Weekly Report. Each week, we here at SSWR step right outside of our offices here on 54th and ask folks on the street our question of the week. Sometimes topical, sometimes whimsical, always intriguing. Our question this week, what is the most interesting encounter you've ever had with an alien animal species? Rowena Morello, accountant, Staten Island. That's gotta be the time we got the hat high with the glyph. My college roommate worked in the xenobiology lab and brought the glyph home one night in a shoebox. It's just this little mouse-like thing, so of course the cat wanted it right away. It's cat food-sized. We pushed the cat away from it a couple of times, but then I had to go make a call. I left the glyph alone in its box on the table, and the cat hopped up and started poking at the thing with its paw. You know, poke, poke, poke. Thing is, the glyph is a total predator. And it's got this mouth that opens up like a little umbrella and surrounds whatever it's going to eat. So there's the cat, batting at the glyph, and suddenly the glyph lunges forward, opens its jaws, wraps them around the cat's paw, and clamps down hard. It's trying to eat the cat. Well, the cat's freaking out, of course. It's scooting backwards, trying frantically to shake this thing off its paw and wailing, you know, like a cat in heat. My roommate had to use a popsicle stick from the trash to pry the glyph's mouth open. The cat ran away and seemed to be pissed off, but okay. Then a half hour later, I caught him just staring at a bookshelf and wobbling back and forth. Seems that glyphs paralyze their prey with venom. It kills just about anything on the glyph's planet, but here it just makes you hallucinate. It's a chemistry thing. After we realized the cat wasn't going to die, it was actually pretty funny to watch him bump into walls and stare at his own paws. Although at one point, he sprinted right towards an open window, and my roommate had to make a lunge to keep him from jumping out. It was a third-floor walk-up. I guess the cat thought he could fly. Anyway, the glyph went back to the lab the next day. The funny thing is that for the next couple of days, the cat seemed to be looking around to find the glyph circling the table and poking into boxes and stuff. I think he wanted a fix. Alan Jones Wynn, copywriter, Manhattan. My daughter's third grade class was taking a trip to the Bronx Zoo, and it was my turn to be a parent assistant, so I got the day off from work and helped her teacher herd a couple dozen kids around the place, which, if you've never done it, is just as aggravating as it sounds. This was around the time that the zoo was just opening their alien animals exhibit, and the place was jam-packed. It actually helped that we were on an official educational field trip, because otherwise we probably wouldn't have been able to get through the crowds. We filed through, and the tour guide pointed out all the popular alien animals, like those omads and the revers and the neons. Right, the ones they make stuffed animal toys of to sell at the gift shop. But then we came to this one habitat, and the tour guide stopped and pointed out what had to have been the ugliest lump of fur in the whole zoo. She told us that the lump we were looking at was called a karoo, and that it was an endangered species on Tunksk, and that the Bronx Zoo and others were trying to start a captive breeding program. 
As she was saying this, her eyes were welling up with tears, and it seemed like she was about to break down right then and there. Well, obviously, this seemed like pretty bizarre behavior, but then I looked at the Karoo, and it swiveled an eye stalk at me, and I swear I was overwhelmed with this wave of sadness and regret that was so overpowering I can't even describe it. It's like what you'd probably feel if you'd just heard that a bus carrying everyone you ever knew just went off a mountain trail in Peru. And it wasn't just me. All those kids, who you couldn't have shut up if you wired their jaws shut, were all just standing there silently, staring at the Karoo, and looking like they'd just seen their dog run over by a car. One of these kids actually tapped on the glass of the habitat and said, I'm sorry, to the Karoo, over and over. We had to literally drag some of the kids away. I mean, I wouldn't call it telepathy or mind control, but something was going on there. My kid and I went back a couple of years later, and the Karoo exhibit wasn't there anymore, and I was sort of glad. It's never a good thing to worry that you're going to get clinically depressed at the zoo. At a dinner party a little later, I met a vet who worked at the zoo, and I asked him about the Karoo. He said that one zoologist working with a habitat committed suicide, and another was placed on leave after she took the zoo's breeding pair, drove them up to Vermont, and tried to release them into the wild. She kept telling everyone afterwards that they told her it was what they wanted. They eventually had to get rid of the exhibit altogether. I haven't heard about the Karoo since. I think they're extinct now. Ted McPeak, community college student, Jersey City. Some friends and me heard that if you smoked the skin of an erret, you could get monumentally wasted. So we bought one at a pet store and waited a couple weeks until it shed its skin. Then we crumbled up the dry skin, put it in with some pot, and lit up. We all got these insane mouth blisters that didn't go away for weeks. We all had to eat soup for a month. Though maybe it wasn't the skin, the pot could have been bad or something. We flushed the erret down the toilet after we got the blisters though, so we'd have to go buy a new one to try it out again. I don't think we'll bother. Kahungran Ongru, cultural attaché for fine arts and literature, Royal Kindran Embassy, Manhattan. Well, I am myself an alien here, so I suppose you could say that the most interesting incident with an alien animal was with one of your animals, a dog. Shortly after being assigned to the embassy here, I was given a shih tzu by a human friend. I was delighted, of course. He really was an adorable thing, and he was very loving and devoted to me. I named him Fred. I like that name. As you may know, the male of the kindra species is a large, non-sentient, segmented worm, which we females attach across our midriffs during the mating process. The male stays attached while a four-part fertilization process occurs over several days. It's not very romantic by human standards, but obviously it works well for us. Shortly before one of my ovulatory periods, I had managed to score a rather significant diplomatic coup when I convinced the Guggenheim to tour selections of its collection among the Kindra home planets. As a reward, I was allowed to choose a male from the oligarchical breeding stock for my next insemination. The one I chose had deep segment ridges and a nicely modeled scale pattern. Again, not something a human would find attractive, but deeply compelling for Kindrai. He was attached to me in a brief conjoining ceremony at the embassy, attended by selected Kindra and human friends, and then I went home to Fred. Fred came running to meet me at the door as he always did, 
but when he saw the mail across my belly, he skidded across the tiles, and then started growling and barking and backing away slowly. I tried to assure him that everything was okay, but every time I tried to reach for Fred, he'd back away some more. At one point, he snapped at my tendrils. I was surprisingly hurt. Although it seemed silly to want Fred and the mail to get along, considering the mail was doing nothing but lying there, I did want them to get along, if for no other reason than the mail would be attached to me for the next week or so. But for the next few days, Fred would have nothing to do with me. He wouldn't eat from his bowl until I left the room. He even peed in my shoes. On the fourth night of this, I was sleeping when I suddenly felt a sharp pain in my abdomen. It was the male, beginning to unhook himself from me. Then I heard the growling. I snapped on a light, looked down, and saw Fred attacking the male. He had managed to get a bite in between two of the male's ring segments and punctured an artery. The male was bleeding all over my bed. If the male managed to completely detach himself, it would be disastrous. My impregnation cycle was not yet complete, and it would be highly unlikely after a noble male was attacked in my bed that I would be entrusted with another ever again. So with one arm, I lodged the male back onto me and struggled to keep him in place. With another, I reached for the phone to call my doctor, and with the third, I scooped up Fred and tossed him off the bed. He landed on the floor with a yelp and limped away, winding up a perfectly charming incident for all three of us. I was rushed to the embassy infirmary, where the male's injuries were sutured, and he was sedated to the point where he would again willingly reattach himself to me. By some miracle, the fertilization process was uninterrupted. I was confined to an infirmary bed for the rest of the process, while doctors made sure everything went as it was supposed to. The ambassador came to visit afterwards, and I expressed my shame at the incident and offered my resignation. She declined it, and told me that no one blamed me for what happened, but that it would probably be a good idea to get rid of Fred. I did, giving him to a retired human diplomat I had worked with for many years. I visit them both frequently, and Fred is always happy to see me. He is always happy to see my daughter, who is also named Fred. As I said, I like that name. Dr. Elliot Morgenthal, Dr. Stamford. Oh, God. I worked the ER as an intern right around the time of that stupid fungdu craze. Here's the thing about fungdu. They're furry, they're friendly, they vibrate when they're happy, and they have unusually large toothless mouths. So you can see where this is going. About two or three times a month, we'd get some poor bastard coming in with a fungdu stuck on his Johnson. What people apparently don't know about fungdu is that if they think that what they've got in their mouths is live prey, these little backward-pointing quills emerge out of their gums to keep whatever they're trying to eat from escaping. And these dumbasses get into their heads to get a hummer from their fungdu, and then are understandably surprised to discover that their pet thinks it's being fed a live hot dog. Out come the quills, and the next thing you know, there's some asshole in the emergency room trying to explain to me how his erect penis just happened to fall into the fungdu's mouth. He tripped, you see. How inconvenient. Here's the truly disgusting thing about this. All the time this is going on, the fungdu is desperately trying to swallow. And that animal has some truly amazing peristaltic motion. Again, you can see where this is going. The nurses wouldn't touch any of these guys. They told them to clean up after their own damn selves. Who can blame them? Dale and Sue Dukes, 
Plumbing supplies. Queens. It was this one time I was driving through Texas, and I saw the weirdest fucking thing on the side of the road. It looked like an armor-plated rabbit or something. It was just lying there, though. I think it was dead. You idiot. That's an armadillo. They're from Earth. No, you must be thinking of some other animal. This thing was totally not Earth-like at all. It had, like, scales and shit. That's an armadillo. They're all over Texas. They're like the state animal or something. Everybody knows that. Well, what the fuck do I know about Texas? I'm from Queens, and we sure as hell don't got any armadillos in Queens. Oh, yeah. If it's not from Queens, it ain't shit, right? You got that right. Fucking Texas. Hey, hey what about those things, you know, that uh, got the duck bill? You mean ducks? No, smartass. They don't look like a duck. They just got a duck bill. What, a platypus? Yeah, a platypus. Where are those things from? They're from Earth, too. No shit. Man, Earth is a weird-ass planet sometimes. And that was our story. One codicil to the duck story that Anna didn't mention was that when Sully Dog found out about it, which, of course, Anna's making sure everyone on the planet does, he sent me a gift via Amazon. A wild Animals of the World coloring book. I'm still figuring out ways to get even with it. Oh, look, a book review about something else entirely. Oh, well, it's got birds in the title, too. But, anyway. Hi, Steve, this is Jason Eric Lundberg of the Lies and Little Deaths podcast and jasonlundberg.net. I'm going to be reviewing Sherry Priest's novel, uh, 4 and 20 Blackbirds. Um, I finished it a couple weeks ago, and it's one of those books that I'm still thinking about it uh, even now. Um, Sherry Priest does an excellent job with her pacing and showing you her world exactly at the rate at which she wants to show it to you, to both exciting and suspenseful effects. Her prose is fluid and lovely, but not purple, and her ear for southern dialects feels spot on. Uh, She evokes Chattanooga like someone who was born and lived there their entire whole life, um, which is a tricky thing to do, especially for someone who has apparently moved around as much as she has. The settings and the characters all feel right under Priest's assured hand, and she draws you into the story as deftly as a former debutante with a pitcher of sweet tea. I'm not sure where she fits in the canon of Southern Gothic, but she seems to deeply understand the neuroses, eccentricities, and importance of family in the American South, and she shows this understanding to wonderful and terrifying effect. Uh, Needless to say, I greatly enjoyed this novel, and I hope that Priest has a long career ahead of her. I'm very much looking forward to the sequel, Wings to the Kingdom. Thanks, Jason. I've heard that book recommended from a few sources now. I'll have to check it out. Over a pitcher of sweet tea. And I'll have a side of humble pie with that tea. Last week I mentioned a listener survey on our site, and I said I'd donate a dollar to a child's play for every person who filled out the survey. Well, we've gotten some mixed responses to that. A lot of people were annoyed by the marketing-oriented nature of a lot of the questions, and I got more than one comment that basically said the charity angle was the only reason they suffered through the thing. I apologize for that, and I want to make my intentions clear. I didn't put that survey up because I intend to sell ads. Escape Pod is listener-supported, and as long as you all are willing to support us, I don't see a need to change that. If the survey annoyed you, I'm very sorry. I'm going to leave the link up, and I hope you'll take it if you want to. But it's also come to me, too late, that charity should never be contingent on another's actions. So I'm going to donate the full amount I promised to Child's Play, $300, regardless of how many of you fill the thing out. 
If you think it's a good cause, I hope you'll give what you can as well. Or anywhere else you can spare a few dollars this holiday season. Alright. After all that, I feel kind of silly asking you to click on the PayPal link at escapepod.org. But we do use your donations to pay our authors, so I'm going to mention it anyway. As I just did. We rely on your support because we give these stories away under an attribution, non-commercial, no-derivatives license. It's re-gifting made legitimate. Today's featured listener is Robbie Taylor. He sent me an email after the Corporate Network and the Forces of Darkness story, saying, You guys have been watching my company. What caught my eye was the URL in his signature. He runs a blog called Today in Alternate History, which is a brilliant little experiment offering historical facts each day that never occurred. A lot of them are really fun. I didn't realize, for instance, that today was the day the failed anti-British insurgent George Washington died in exile in Canada. Poor guy. Anyway, Taylor's running a contest right now for alternate Christmas days. And at the time of this podcast, you've still got a few days left to enter. You should check it out. And that was our show for this week. In closing, I leave you with a quote from Samuel Butler, who said, All of the animals except for man know that the principal business of life is to enjoy it. Until next week, let's all be animals. Chicken! No, wait, that's not how the story goes. It's a duck. Cheese.